If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Now on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I'm your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actual advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. I am thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Allison Alsop. Allison, welcome to the show. Hi, Paul. Thank you. So a little bit about Allison. Allison comes to us from the UK. She's in uh, Nottingham. She graduated from the University of Nottingham, started her career at Capital One, and during her 18 years there, was promoted seven times, eventually working as head of finance, planning, reporting, and data before leaving to join the National Health Services Supply Chain Organization, where she's currently the head of FPNA. So, Alice, can you maybe start by just you know giving us a little bit about your background and yourself? Tell us a little bit about your career journey. Sure. So, as you say, I went to the University of Nottingham, and when I graduated from there, I applied for a job at Capital One and started there in the September after I graduated in their cost team. So I worked as a cost analyst for a period of time and worked my way through various jobs across lots of different parts of finance, covering management accounting. I worked for a period of time in their emerging markets business. So that was when Capital One had businesses in France, Italy and Spain. So I had the joy of working with lots of different currencies and different time zones as well, because we were part of a US organization as well. And had some time in the accounting team as well. And loads of different types of roles, some of them sort of sideways moves, some of them promotions, loads of different experiences, building just lots of different skills and experience and knowledge that would stand me in, in good stead in the future. I also did a stint in their finance risk office, so not just doing accounting, but also some risk management for two or three years before ending up in the finance planning and reporting function, which I really enjoyed, really loved and spent some time there and, and got promoted onto the finance leadership team. But after 18 and a half years, decided that the time was right for a new challenge and moved on to the NHS supply chain where I started in March 2020, just as the COVID-19 pandemic started to hit the UK. So that was an interesting time to join an organisation that's linked to our National Health Service. And I've, I've been the head of FPNA for almost three years, but for about a year in that time, I also stepped up to support the CFO who was doing an acting up role as our acting CEO. So I stepped up to support him on the exec team and attending board meetings and that kind of thing. So lots of different challenges during my time at the NHS supply chain so far, but all good experience. Definitely, I could imagine quite a few challenges. March of uh, 20 as the world changed real quick after you joined. I still remember it was in March. My wife and I went to buy a new car 
and I'm sitting in the dealership and it was the night a basketball player, he actually played for the Utah Jazz where I'm from, tested positive and they started shutting down like the whole world. They canceled the game and I'm in the dealership when I hear this going, everything's going to shut down in the next week. I'm like, can I be buying a car right now? Am I going to have a job in a week? You know, and I'd already pretty much just was finalizing all the papers and going, all right, we'll, we'll see what tomorrow brings. I can only imagine being in the front end of healthcare, supporting that, how challenging that time had to be. Yeah, it did suddenly change. We, I joined on the 2nd of March thinking that it was this thing that was in a different country that might turn out to be a little bit like some of the other diseases that were threatened to be something bigger than they ended up being. And then within a week, my children's breakfast club and after school club had closed down because one of the key workers had tested positive for COVID and all of a sudden it became scarily real. But at the same time, working for an organisation that was providing critical supplies into the NHS. So home was chaotic because of the impact on the children and us personally, but also the impact that was starting to happen to our health service and therefore the NHS supply chain as a result. It was a crazy start to a new role and what I definitely hadn't expected. I can imagine and we'll uh, you know, dig into that a little further here a little later on. I want to ask more about that because I imagine there was a lot of learnings that one could take away from that. But I want to share with our audience. So how I've learned about Allison is our sponsor, DataRails, the person on the back end who works with me, had reached out, said, hey, can you have this person on the show and sent me a link of a Women's in Finance episode you did. And I was really impressed as I watched that. You know, you shared a lot about your experience at Capital One and just some of your personal struggles as well, which I could really relate to having dealt with some similar things myself. And one of the things you talked about is how you kind of felt unqualified for the roles you had and struggled with self-doubt. Could you maybe talk about what that experience was like and kind of how you worked through that? Sure. I think it goes back to actually being a child and not being very confident in myself and having a few, what at the time, you know, when you look back and you see them as probably quite normal childhood things that happen with challenges with friendships and those kinds of things, but they really shaped how I felt about myself and how I trusted other people. And as I go, started going through my exams and I started going through the world of work, I really started to feel a huge amount of pressure that I needed to prove myself and I needed to prove to other people that I was good at my job. And I didn't quite believe I was good enough. I remember after I left university, I went to a, a recruitment agency to look for some temporary work to tide me over the summer. And they said to me, have you considered a job at Capital One? We think your CV would be perfect. And my response was, I thought Capital One was for really smart people and I hadn't considered it because I didn't think I was good enough. And they put me forward for the job and I interviewed for it and I got the job. But even then, I really struggled to believe, does someone really want me? Can, do they really know what I'm like and that I can be this slightly chaotic person in my own head. And that sort of follows you through and it takes, there's a lot of things that just keep following you through. If you don't address them, they just keep following you through. So each time I would, someone would tell me I did a good job, I'd be like, are they just being nice to me? Because I don't think this is anything out of the ordinary. Are they just being kind? And it actually started to get more and more difficult because the way that I proved to myself that I was good enough was, well, if I get a promotion or I get a certain performance rating, that's been moderated. 
So no one's going to give me a promotion if I don't deserve it. That's okay. So I started to push myself to work really hard to get those almost external validations that I was good enough. But there's all along, there's this little voice in the back of your head, going to get found out soon. Someone's going to realise that you're not actually that good and it's all going to come crashing down. And it's, yeah, it's not a nice place to be. Yeah, I can definitely relate to some of that, you know, in different ways with the childhood and things you mentioned, the imposter syndrome. It was a kid, I ran a lot and I enjoyed running, but I enjoyed it more because I got recognition. I was good at it. It was a way to kind of help with those self-doubts than that I loved running for the sake of running. As I got older and started doing it again, I realized I started to enjoy it for the passion of it after I'd worked through some of that self-doubt and just being, okay, do it because you enjoy it, not because, oh, hey, I came in first in my age group. So look at me. So I must be successful you know, because others saw me is doing really good in this case. So I can relate to what you're saying there. And I think it's a struggle that I think much of our audience can relate to. So with that, you had mentioned on the uh, Women in Finance podcast that there was a moment where things kind of changed for you, where, you know, maybe things came to a head and it really helped you kind of step back and gain a new perspective. Could you talk a little bit to that? Sure. Over the years, you push yourself harder. You push yourself to prove yourself more. And you get to the point where that's not sustainable because you're doing more and more things and it's getting busier and busier. And I think for me, there'd always been that element of imposter syndrome and lack of self-confidence. But then when my son was born, I had a really difficult time. And looking back, I can now acknowledge that as a result of a really traumatic situation, I started to suffer with depression alongside being anxious and lacking self-confidence. And a combination of those two factors started to converge. And my way of working through it was actually just to keep going and push harder and push faster. And I was that person that had the full-time job. I was chair of our parent-teacher association. I was a school governor. And I did all of those things, I think, partly to keep busy and keep proving to other people as much as to myself that I could do it all and I could be this person. It was my son's birthday, I think it was his eighth birthday, and all of a sudden it was almost like I hit a brick wall. And I've read a few books that sometimes describe it as like the fuse has blown and you can push as much power as you want through the device, but if the fuse has gone, it isn't going to work. And that's exactly how I felt. It was just like I just couldn't cope anymore. And I remember one day I went into work, it was the day after my son's birthday and I'd been in floods of tears all the way to work and my boss at the time took one look at me and she said, come with me. And she took me into a room and she sat me down and she said, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine, the usual, I'm fine. And she said, really? And I just broke down. I said, I'm tired of feeling this way. I can't feel like this any longer. And... I went to the GP, I got some medication, I went and saw a therapist and that, as much as it was a real low point in my life, it was a huge turning point to actually starting to address not just that immediate thing that had happened eight years previously, but address the stuff that had happened and the behaviours that I'd built up over 30 odd years of my life to become where it got to at that point. Thank you for being vulnerable and willing to share that. I know those kind of stories can be hard and that hits very close to me. And I've talked about this before on LinkedIn a fair amount. You know, I've lost some family members to mental health problems. You know, it runs in my family and I lost a brother young when I was in college. And that's when it finally hit me that I needed help. And so, you know, I started to do the counseling and the medicine and it's been a long journey since. And it 
I've seen a, a lot where it's helped me. So I appreciate you sharing that and talking to that. You know, one question I'd like to ask is just, you know, having gone through those struggles and having, you know, kind of hit bottom and then got the help you needed to be in a better place, what would advice would you offer to someone who's struggling with that self-doubt, maybe struggling in their career and thinking it's all about proving themselves and they're trying to do everything? For me, the biggest turning point has been to, there's a couple of things. One is to turn those questions back on myself. So one of the biggest learnings for me has been that acknowledgement that I am a good person and I am doing the best that I can do. And I know that and I've always known that. And it's learning that I can't give more than my best. And if that's not good enough, then that's not my problem. That is, I'm in the wrong situation or I'm in the wrong role or I'm with the wrong people. So it's looking at what you value and what is important to you for your values and your beliefs and doing what you genuinely in your heart. And I'm kind of holding my hands in because it's such an internal feeling. And that's one of the biggest things that I would say, but also talking to other people, finding people that you trust one of the biggest things for me is trusting that somebody will tell me if I'm not doing a good job. So I've since been really clear with the managers that I have that the good feedback is lovely to hear. We all like to hear when we're doing a good job. But for me to really believe it and really take it on board and trust that it's true, I also need to hear the development stuff. I also need to hear the stuff I could do better. And if somebody's just saying you're doing a great job. Don't worry about it. There's always something we can do better. So I need to have that trust that they will tell me. And that really helps me to relax a bit more into my role and be more confident in what I'm doing. There's two things. One, becoming comfortable with you. And the other one is building those trusting relationships. And as a result, I lead by example. So I try to make sure I have the same conversations with other people, with my teams. And, and I talk about this kind of stuff as well, because it helps people know where you're coming from and why you might need what you need. So if somebody's struggling with self-doubt, I would say be honest with people, be honest about how you're feeling. And if the person you're talking to doesn't respond well to that and almost rejects that point of view, if it's an employer, really question, are they the right people to be surrounding yourself with? Do you really want to work somewhere where your true values and feelings aren't recognised and appreciated. And that's easy to say because I come from a place where I genuinely feel that they are, but I found it works for me for sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, and I appreciate what you said there about the one, learning to kind of trust in yourself, be yourself, and also surrounding yourself with people that will be honest with you, that you could have those open, honest conversations. So I'm a big fan of, you know, having mentors or having those trusted people, both inside and outside work that will we'll give it to you straight sometimes when you need it, right? Because yes, it's nice to hear all the praise, but we all know we have rooms to improve. And reality is we're typically our harshest critic. I know I am. You know, other people are, you're doing a great job. And I'm sitting there thinking, if only you knew the truth, right? You're laughing because I think you shared some of those same things. Like, they ever figure out what I'm really like, I'm out of here. Like they do know I'm a fraud, right? So I've definitely had those moments where I've felt that way. And so I think it's just important to have those right people around you. And I really appreciate how you talked about, you know, being willing to get help and having sometimes a professional that can help you gain those skills you need. So helping employees know that, you know, one of my favorite episodes we did is we had uh, two people from here, one from the UK and one from it was Brussels or Belgium. I can't remember now, but 
This was you know months ago, and we talked about mental health and burnout in finance because you know budgeting and planning season. We've all been there where it can be some really long hours and late nights as numbers don't tie. And just about how to manage that and make sure you have employers that can help you there. So appreciate you you know taking a little bit of time to talk about your experience there and discussing you know, some of those challenges. So thank you. So next, I want to move on just a little bit more in kind of the FP&A side. As you know, that's one of the things we really like to talk about. And, you know, something I mentioned in your bio and that impressed me that you talked about is that Capital One, you know, you climbed the corporate ladder relatively quickly, had a number of different promotions and opportunity to move up. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that experience and then also what advice you might offer to someone who's looking to climb the corporate ladder, so to speak? Yeah, I think for me, some of those promotions came when I least expected them. So I actually, as much as I wanted that external validation and I wanted the promotions to help me, actually, a lot of the ways that I developed and improved was looking for experiences and looking at roles that I thought I would enjoy or that would be a bit different or would give me something new and a new challenge. So or was offered, I was very lucky that there were some senior folk at Capital One who did really believe in me. And I've since had conversations with them to understand that piece, but they helped me identify some sideways moves that would give me a breadth of experience that then meant that I could make that next leap. That was really helpful actually, because I think when you first start out, and I've seen this with other people, you see progression as being one step after another and you see that progression as being a promotion or a job at the next level or something that's going to move you upwards and what I tried to do was look at things that would instead of move me directly straight up would actually expand my experience so that I had a more stable platform and that's the thing that I would advise most people to do now is a sideways move is often as much of a progression point as something that takes you upwards and if you're building a really high tower if you built it straight like that it would fall over fairly quickly so actually if you build it more broadly at the bottom and then start to build up then you have a really solid foundation on which to build your career and your progressions. And so I felt like some of my early promotions came really painfully slowly at the time. You know, it was like, oh, come on, when is this going to happen? But the last few happened quite quickly. And now I look back, I can see that through some of those development things that I did, that gave me a solid base. And then, then I've been able to pick on the things that I know that I'm good at because I've tried a lot of stuff and I found things that I enjoy and I found the things that I can now look back and go, actually, I'm quite good at that and use my skills and where I think I see my strengths to help me progress and develop as well. I love the answer there. We had on the show a guy who they had worked with Gartner to try to help their employees. They put a program in place to help them advance their career. And they said, it's not really a corporate ladder anymore. You know, a lot of times it's a squiggly line. It's all over. And he talked a lot about that importance of taking lateral roles. And he referred to it as you have a finance passport. If you really want to get a senior leadership, you need to punch different spots in the passport and kind of referred to it as like a finance athlete versus a finance specialist. And so some of the things you're talking about, right, it's building that base. If you really want to get to senior leadership, CFO, head of an organization, whatever it might be, whatever your definition of senior leadership is, you got to have a base and broad experience. And rarely you get all that if you're just constantly climbing. There's exceptions, but you really, that broad experience. I know 
one of the best roles I ever took was a lateral for me. It was with a different company, but it led to promotions and it led to opportunities that I wouldn't have got if I had held out and said, no, I'm only leaving if I get a promotion. It has to be, you know, a bigger title and all those things. I appreciate what you said there because I agree with you. I think often early in our career, like you mentioned, we think it's painfully too slow, but I've been in this role for a year and you said I'm doing a great job. Why haven't I got my promotion or whatever it might be? Yeah. I also think that quite often I was as guilty as anyone of this. Usually when you join a big company or you join as a finance graduate, you've come from school and university and, and where you are used to being one of the smartest. You're used to being, because when you're at secondary school and doing your exams, you only get to university if you've done really well in your exams and you're in that top portion. And then when you're at university, you get a job with a big company or whatever and graduate if you're in that top section of graduates. So you join an organisation, so I joined an organisation like Capital One, thinking, well, you know, I've graduated with a really good degree from a really good university and I'm used to passing exams and succeeding at exams. So I should go in and be pretty good. And then you join, you think, hang on a minute, everybody else is just like me. (laughs) It's a real culture shock. And you suddenly realise that you are just normal. And for someone that also suffers with imposter syndrome, you suddenly go, actually, I'm not even one of the best. I'm actually a real imposter here and I shouldn't be here. Why am I here amongst all these people who are really, really smart? And I've got better degrees than I have from better universities than I have. And yeah, so so then trying to think that you could have progressed really quickly through the corporate ladder, you suddenly go, no, because these are all much better than I am and they'll get there before me. So it's fun. <laughs> it is. It's, you know, and I think biggest advice I would give to people as I've listened to you talk and so many different people on the show is be patient, be willing to build a broad base of experience Find people that believe in you and that will be trusted advisors, not just, you know, give you the uh, Kool-Aid, so to speak, or the sugar-coated answer, but will give you the truth in a positive, supportive way, because that will be one of the best things you can do for your career. Well, I want to kind of, you know, shift gears here a little bit. I know we talked a little bit in the opening and even before we jumped on the podcast about moving to the NHS. I know you moved in March 2020. Can you maybe just talk a little bit more about that experience in particular, you know, what it was like going from the corporate world, Capital One, to an organization, and I know it was supply chain, which is a little different from the NHS, if you want to talk about that, but just going to an organization that was much more government run, you know, healthcare, totally different kind of animals, so to speak, right? Very different from where you had been and going in at a time that was unprecedented. Maybe just take us a little bit through that experience. Absolutely. So for the benefit of anybody that doesn't know, isn't familiar with the NHS, I guess. So the NHS supply chain is a separate company from the NHS, but it is owned by NHS England. So we operate as a separate business. We have funding from the NHS to operate, but we run as a separate entity. And the NHS buys products from us, but isn't mandated to buy products from us but that's the the aim is that we can procure at a at a better price because we buy on on mass so gone from a credit card provider with a US parent company as a bank 
to a company that's pretty much public sector to all intents and purposes. So there are some similarities in a lot of respects in that there's a lot of governance. So when you work for a credit card provider that's owned by a bank, there's a lot of governance around what you can and can't do. There's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of reporting that you need to do to your parent company. And when you work for the public sector, there's a lot of governance and there's a lot of reporting that you need to do to your owners and prove that strong financial governance and robust reporting. As much as you'd think they're very, very different, there are some similarities in terms of that robust nature of what you have to do, but just for slightly different reasons. I think the biggest difference for me is going from a company that is a public limited company and you have sort of private shareholders to one where you are responsible for managing public money. In the UK, there is a huge passion around the NHS. But actually, in the UK, there's a real banks and credit card providers are the bad guys and you are bad and you are evil. And the NHS is almost our baby and it's something that we need to protect and nurture. There's a very different mentality to when you tell people that you work for the NHS versus you work for a credit card company. But also there's a real passion to the people that you work with when you work within the NHS. I would say the majority of people that I work with all have some history with our NHS or their families have history with the NHS. And we're all united actually with a, a common purpose to want to drive benefits into the front line so that the front line can can really succeed and spend the money on treating patients, improving patient care, improving patient outcomes. And that's the thing that we, as an organisation, we feel really passionately about and it drives everything that we do. And it's wonderful to work for an organisation that has such a, a social purpose and a real passion amongst its workforce. There was a lot of that within Capital One as well. Capital One really wanted to not be the bad guy of credit cards and banking. Capital One wanted to change banking and be something that was good. So there are similarities, but there are a lot of differences. Working in, in FP&A, there is a massive focus on in Capital One on the analytics and really being and deeply analytical within the NHS. There's a lot more around how are we spending our money? Are we getting value for money? What benefits are we driving and really wanting to understand how we're spending our money and, the, and what we're going to get for it? This is the real so what? It's not just X millions or thousands of pounds. And what does that mean? For every pound that we spend, that's a pound that the frontline can't spend on a nurse or on a patient directly. So it, there is a big difference in focus. So a lot to unpack there. A few things. I had a laugh when you said the Capital One and the big evil bank. I did things you know, a little differently, but I worked for American Express for eight years. I can relate to that. And before that, I worked for the government, actually in supply chain, in procurement, writing contracts. It wasn't you know, in the healthcare, it was in the military. So it was with the Navy. So just some of the things you said in the government and just a different thinking as you're going through all this. Well, I did a little bit reverse. It's a little different, but I can relate to a lot of what you said there. But something else really kind of touched me there or struck a nerve that you said is just the idea of you know every dollar the healthcare supply chain spends is one less dollar to help treat somebody, right? That goes to the front line, as you mentioned. How does FBNA contribute to the strategy of the National Health Service supply chain and also the NHS as a whole? And then maybe even more specifically, how did you manage that during the pandemic? Because I would imagine the supply chain, I know it wasn't the U.S., was stretched to its limits. Masks, you know, beds, 
a lot of things. So maybe kind of just talk a little bit about, in particular, first, just how FP&A helped manage through the pandemic and the challenges that came to the supply chain. So when it comes to the sort of typical things that you think about during the pandemic was PPE, so like say masks, aprons, gloves, those kinds of things, a lot of that fairly quickly was carved out and a separate entity run by the Department of Health was created because it was just identified that this very quickly, that what was there was just going to be on such a massive scale that it needed to be managed as its own thing and dealt with by itself. So what NHS supply chain was left with, everything that wasn't PPE, and we still had people that were involved in PPE, but that core business outside of that was changed quite a lot and it was constantly changing because, as you imagine, hospitals and all healthcare settings were overwhelmed with what was happening with COVID so things like elective surgeries and all those other things where we would normally provide products into the hospitals and the trusts started to drop down. So from an FP&A perspective, there was a lot of needing to reforecast on the impact that that would have on our business. So there was greater demand for beds, but there was less demand for surgical instruments because fewer operations were happening and fewer cancer treatments were happening and those kinds of things. So we were having to help advise the business on what was changing and the how demand for our products was changing and the and what that impact was on our funding position and the programs and projects that we needed to run and and all those kinds of things so i remember joining a focus group with people in lots of different organizations not several months after the pandemic hit and we all talked about having to the constant budget cycle and ending up having to almost rebaseline budgets multiple times. So the value that FP&A added during that time was that constant clarity of in a constantly changing environment. What does this mean? What's different? What's changed? How do we need to focus our resources? How can we change what we do? And really just move with the times very, very quickly and provide different models of different scenarios and how are we comparing against scenario A, B, C, D, etc. So that was quite a busy time, even though we didn't have some of the core products that you might imagine that we would need to be looking at during that time. Sure. Yeah. I could see having PPE carved out was obviously a, a huge thing that you didn't have to deal with, but it didn't mean your budget had completely changed. It's something you're probably used to buying. So there was changes for that. And then for all the other things you mentioned, so that constant reforecasting. I mean, I remember when the pandemic hit, I worked for a company that one of the big things we dealt with the automotive industry and we had a lot in Europe were insurance claims. All of a sudden nobody's driving, nobody's on the road. There's no transactions around claims for accidents and things. And so all of a sudden a 90% drop and trying to reforecast, okay, how long does this last? What does it look like if it's three months, if it's six months? Well, what about this scenario? What if it gets worse? What if it gets better? Imagine all those type of things you're probably constantly going through. But having gone through that experience, what do you think are some of the most important things to manage in such a fluid environment where, you know, you never know what the next day is going to be like, so to speak. I think one of the biggest things is to make sure that you've got those relationships built with other areas of the business. So making sure that your business partnering is really, really strong and make sure that you plugged into all of those different things so that you hear about things quickly. In that constantly changing environment, if you don't hear about something for two weeks, the world's changed several times in that two-week period. But if you've got those really strong relationships, 
you are plugged into the right conversations or the right meetings, the right forums, you're getting the right reports or data from the various sources, you can spot those trends and you can spot where you can add value. And I think that's the big piece that FP&A can play. A lot of people see finance people as being holding the purse strings and that kind of thing. But I think you know, FP&A is so much more than that in the way that we operate within my team. We need to be partners with the business and we need to support the business through tricky times like we've been through. And building those relationships is the key to making that happen, both in a crisis situation, in a pandemic situation, but in a business as usual situation. And then you can see much more quickly and much more easily how you can add value through analysis through reforecasting that so what what does this mean to us how do we add value as an organization we need to create business cases because things have changed and we need to get some additional investment or we need to pivot and do something differently and being plugged in helps us to support the business in their decision making and not just be seen to count the numbers and tell them off when they've overspent against their budget yeah i saw something much where you said tell them off it was describing what the rest of the business thinks about finance. And it said one of them was finance feels like you've personally attacked them if you ask for you know money to provide cream cheese and bagels out of breakfast. Yeah, it was kind of the idea. It's like, uh, yeah, right. It's a, fr- what? I want to spend twice. No, 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 no. We can't do that. Obviously, that's not what we want to be known for. It's like you said, we want to be known as a partner where we can help bring value and figure out how to help them get through these difficult situations with keeping a financial lens in mind. I mean, obviously, we'd all like to have unlimited money, especially in a situation like the NHS, right? You'd like to be able to fund everything and do everything for everybody. But the reality is, it's just unfortunately, resources are limited. And I think we have such a key role we can play there, especially when we partner and build that trusting relationship with the business. That's when we can really help guide them through the challenges. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. Kind of speaking of challenges, I know the last few years have obviously been a big challenge. But what do you see as maybe some of the biggest challenges moving forward for the NHS and NHS supply chain? I think some of the biggest challenges for the NHS at the moment are resources generally. So there's a real challenge around having sufficient nurses and 
resources for those that work in the hospitals and for various other services around the hospital trust. So there's a real challenge around there being enough funding to kind of even keep things moving as they need to be. So there are, you know, there are really long waiting lists. There are challenges around having the right number of people. At the moment in the UK, there are strikes happening over not just pay and conditions and working conditions and those kinds of things. And it's a really challenging time. Our NHS has been through so much over the last three years and there's just no breathing space for them to recover and deal with everything that's happened in the last three years and to repair where things are. And organisations like the NHS supply chain are, I think, a really critical part in helping the front line to put its money where it really needs to put its money And we can really play an important role in not just pound savings on products and and that kind of thing, but in really kind of having some insight and support in terms of driving genuine value to allow the NHS to have more money to spend on the things that it really needs to spend the money on and to improve the way that we interact with the NHS and those kinds of things. There are huge challenges. The economy is going to be one of the biggest challenges I think that faces not just the NHS, not just the NHS supply chain, but the broader across the whole country, across the world is, you know, the inflate, we're seeing record levels of inflation and and those kinds of things. So there are huge challenges from all different angles. And I think that economic situation also creates challenges because it challenges our people. So we have colleagues who will be facing personal challenges as a result of the economic situation, which then makes coming to work kind of difficult because they're dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff as well. So got challenges from all all different angles, but I think funding is one of those really big things. I, I don't envy those that hold the purse strings at the most senior level trying to decide where the money goes because that is a really difficult thing to juggle. It is for sure, and you can never win. Always someone's going to be unhappy because there's just not unlimited funds. So I could see funding being a real challenge. I think the other one you mentioned makes sense to me is just the stress on the system. Right, There really hasn't been a break over the last few years, and so you have people wearing down. And so it's not, you know, you want to be able to do everything you can to help preserve those funding and make intelligent decisions. But there's also that very human side that's a real concern of just the people and the challenges of being stressed for a couple of years in ways that you probably haven't been for such a long time in your life, in your work environment. And then to have the personal come behind of the economy and the inflation creates some, you know, real challenges, both on a professional and personal relationship for people. So trying to also, you know, how do you manage that as an organization? And so kind of speaking to that, how do you manage that with your team? How do you kind of make sure that you're getting the work done you need to and that everybody's in a good place? I think it comes back to something I've said earlier, communication, knowing your team, spending the time to get to know individuals, but also creating that space where they feel safe to talk about things. So it's not just about now, it's about the work that you've put in before this point. And it goes for any situation. I firmly believe in putting people first and talking to my team and understanding who they are, where they come from and what they bring and what worries them, what makes them tick, what worries them. And the more you talk to people and the more you open up and the more you're vulnerable with them about your own situation, the more likely they are to talk to you. And I do very much try to lead by example and provide that opening to say, 
yeah, I'm struggling here. I'm finding this really difficult. How about you? How are you finding it? It gives them that, almost that opening, that permission to say, yeah, I'm finding this really hard and I'm really, it's really tough right now. And that seems to be working. I've had you know, members of my team that come and talk to me about stuff. There's probably a whole bunch of stuff that they don't talk about. And if any of them watch this back, they'll be sitting here going, I've not told you this. <laughs> but I do try to encourage that sort of environment and that culture of being open and honest. And I try to provide different forums that work. So when I first started, I had some one-to-one time with each member of my team. When somebody new starts, I try to make sure that there's time, there's one-to-one time with them. You know, even not just my direct reports, people who are direct reports off my direct reports. And you know, time that we all come into the office together, time that we all get together and just actually chat. We don't have any agenda. Once a fortnight, we have a team drop-in session and we sometimes use it just to talk to each other. And that helps to build that environment of trust and of sharing and of talking to each other. You know, a couple of things that stood out to me there, if I was to summarize, you know, first you mentioned communication, kind of then the, the whole idea of just being open and honest within communication, that transparency, and then making sure you have a culture that everybody feels like they're involved and part of the team, essentially doing activities, doing things to make sure everybody feels like they're important to the overall mission. I think that's great advice there. And I really appreciate that and appreciate a little bit about the NHS. So I'm curious, you know, I could tell you have you know, a real passion for working with teams. You've obviously worked a lot in finance. What particular is it about financial planning that you love? What's kept you working in FP&A for as long as you have? I love the fact that you see all different aspects of the business. So you, you get to see so many different things, as not just the business as usual, not just, you know, the things ticking over. You get involved in different projects, you get involved in new things that are happening, but also you get to sort of support on solving some problems and you get to make, potentially make a real difference to the decisions that the business makes. So done right, you can be part of that decision making and help to write the business cases that will get you additional funding in case of the NHS. And it just feels like you have the opportunity to be at the forefront of the things that are happening and the things that are shaping the future of the business. I find it really interesting because there's a real variety and no two days are the same. It's the best of both worlds. You get some numbers, but you also get to engage with other people and talk to other people and find out what's going on. And that's what kept me in finance. I loved it when I really got to work with the business. I enjoy the numbers, but you feel like you made a difference. You're involved in that decision making and you can help drive things forward. I know for me, that's something you know, that's kept me in FP&A as long as I have. So I, you know, I appreciate that answer. You know, we're coming up here toward the end of our time. Just have a couple more questions. And these are ones we kind of ask everybody. One is, what do you see as the biggest opportunity and then maybe the biggest risk for FP&A going forward? It's a tough question. I think one of the biggest opportunities is to using sort of data and tools that will give us greater insights. So there's so many different tools on the market and different things that you can use to help you analyze your data in better ways. So I think there's a real opportunity to use data more and to use those automation tools as well so that you're not having to sit in a spreadsheet and kind of churn through. If you can actually use that data and use that automation to then make better decisions and so you can use your time to add that 
layer of human people need to do, which is that oversight and the the sense check and the the so what of what the data is telling you. So I think there's a real opportunity to unlock there. I think there's also a risk in that there is so much data that you get completely swamped and you can't see the wood for the trees and you can't do anything with it. I think there's a risk that people don't want to move with the times as well. I think we need to make sure that skills keep up with the tools that are that are available. And I think as a, from a personal perspective, it's a bit of a tricky one because you want to be better and you want to do more and you want those exciting things. But equally, that also means that some of those skills that we've really valued over the years become somewhat redundant. And I think one of the risks is that we don't move with that and we hark back to the way that we used to do things and don't embrace those things and see the opportunities that they can really unlock. So there's a couple of risks associated with that opportunity. I think that's well said, and I agree with you. Huge opportunity with data, but with, it comes a lot of risk, getting lost in the uh, forest, so to speak, as you said, and not upskilling. Because the more data we deal with, there's some technical skills that you need to have to unlock those insights. And if you're not learning, you get left behind. So I think that was well said, and I agree with you. This question here is one of my favorite we like to ask anyone, and a little more personal question. We ask people, what's something unique that they can share about themselves with their audience? You know, something we wouldn't find out about you online. So one of the things you don't think you'd find out about me online is when I was at school, well, I'm a qualified swimming teacher and gymnastics teacher. So my part-time job when I was 16 was teaching swimming and gymnastics to five-year-olds. Fun. Been a lot of lessons you learned from that. Yeah. <laughs> Put me up having kids for a while. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could believe that. Well, fun. That. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great one. Next one, you know, our sponsor is DataRels, and they're a financial planning and analysis platform that is built around Excel. So we like asking everybody, what's their favorite Excel, you know, kind of formula, function, feature? What's your favorite thing about Excel? So I, I was talking about this with somebody at work. So I think my uh, favorite formula is really boring. I love a VLOOKUP because it just makes life so much easier. <laughs> you know, that is one of our most common answers. So you're not alone. I also like the ability to draw a waterfall chart because I remember the days of having to draw out on a piece of paper having to work out my stacked bar chart and how big my stacked bars needed to be so that I could get my waterfall to flow properly and add up. So I very much appreciate the waterfall function now as well. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the waterfall. I remember doing the stacked bar, but I had a boss and he'd found it online and it worked great, but he had used a scatter plots with like error bars to build the waterfall chart. And it actually worked better than a bar chart once you got it all set up. But if someone had to try to understand it, it was like, good luck. So I was glad when the waterfall chart came. So I remember going, how did he come up with this? And I found the article and I'm like, hey, this is dense. This is not your uh, intermediate level Excel stuff. So I think everybody was grateful. And I'll share a story with that that I think will make you laugh. So I was doing a training and we were walking through the waterfall chart. And we showed that that could be done in Excel. And one of the guys goes, what? There's a chart now? He'd been still doing it the old way. This was just like a month ago. Yeah. You know, and he was like, all right, this training was worth me just learning that. If I got nothing else out of it, he's like, you paid for yourself. And I just kind of laughed, you know, because he dealt with the pain that you dealt with drawing and figuring out how it works. So I'm with you. That was, I think, a favorite for everybody. So if you were to offer advice to someone starting their career today in FP&A, what advice would you give them? I would say seize every opportunity that comes your way. 
take those opportunities to expand your knowledge. Even if you think it's a sideways move, what can you take from that situation? What can you learn and seek out all those opportunities to learn stuff, have different experiences and broaden your horizons, broaden your knowledge, broaden your skill set, because all of those things, when you add them up, will really help you in the future, in future roles. There's bits that I've taken from each one of my roles and each thing that I've done that make me who I am today. And I think that breadth of stuff that I did early on in my career has really helped me to succeed now. And I think the other thing that I would say is just be true to you and and focus on what you know to be true and the values that you hold dear to yourself. I spent a few years being told I needed to be more something and actually I have become I think, a better leader as I have trusted my own instincts and I've been more authentic and true to myself and I feel I've been more successful by being true to myself than being what somebody else told me I should be. I think there's great advice there. I really love the part about being true to yourself. Well, I've really enjoyed our time. I know we're out of time here. I can see it getting dark throughout the time we started chatting as nighttime there. So I know we need to let you go and enjoy some time with the family. But last thing, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, if they wanted to reach out, is there a good way to connect with you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, so people can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I do try to read and respond to the messages that I receive through LinkedIn, so uh, that's a good place to contact me. Great. Well, we'll go ahead and end, but thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed interviewing you and getting to know you and just chatting with you here. It's been a great conversation, so thank you for carving out some of your evening for us. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Enjoyed it.